This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us, that it is in your word that you have revealed to us your will. It is in your word that you have revealed to us how we are to think, and it is in your, in your word that you have given us a, a framework within which we can come to understand the world around us, the things that happen in our lives, and, and how we are to respond to the circumstances that we face uh, each and every day, that we may reflect in the way we interact with those around us and the world around us, your character and your gracious love. And Father, now as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would give us uh, insight that as we face your word, that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us as we come to understand it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin this morning by going back to our passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And last time I looked at this verse, but I pointed out that there are some problems with the ways, the way that this passage has frequently been understood and frequently been taught. I did uh, get a couple of questions since last week, in which I'm going to address this morning. Uh, because it is a verse that has often been mishandled in one sense, and that is as a way of teaching us how we are to know the will of God. Now, it does express the will of God because it is a command for us, so it expresses the will of God, but not in the way in which that's normally uh, nuanced or taught. And so last time, as we looked at this, I pointed out by way of contrast that Many of us have heard the will of God taught a certain way. And as kind of summarize it here under a few points, that God has a perfect will for every decision in our lives. And I want to emphasize these inclusive words, these all-inclusive words like every and always as I go through this. Uh, That God has a perfect will for every decision in our life. Uh, Another way in which this is taught is that we should live in the center of God's will. In other words, that there's an X marks the spot, and if you're not living right on top of that X, then you're going to be missing out on some of God's blessings in life. You need to discern exactly, precisely where God wants you. 
The implications of that are that that in every if this relates to every decision, then did you see God's will this morning when you uh, decided what you were putting on as you were coming to church? Maybe you should be should have worn a different color. Maybe you ha- should have worn different shoes. Did you, speaking of shoes, did you seek his will and whether or not you should put the left one on first or the right one on first? I mean, how far are we going to extend this in terms of understanding uh, God's will in our life? Uh, third way in which this is often expressed is that God reveals to us precisely what this will is all the time. So how do we tune into that? And people often say, well, if God wants you to do something a certain way, then there will be a, a, a peace that you have in your, in your soul about the decision that you make. And I pointed out last time that there are certain logical flaws with that. There are many uh, serial killers who have great peace when they're carrying out their homicidal tasks. There are many unbelievers. Uh, there are many unbelieving thought systems, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, various forms of pantheism that also emphasize having this sort of inner tranquility as an inner means of guidance for how to make decisions. So then the question is raised, how do we discern the difference between the kind of uh, inner peace and tranquility that an unbeliever would have and one that a believer has. And if your answer is, well, you just know it, my question is, well, how do you just know it? We, there ought to be a way to articulate that, and if there ought to be a biblical way to articulate that. This is related to the last point here, that one of the keys to discerning this will is this inner state of peace or tranquility that we should have when a decision is made pointed out last time that you could go through scripture and there are a number of times when God expressed his specific will to different individuals and they did not really have a sense of peace or inner tranquility about that decision. I focus mostly on the Lord Jesus Christ the night before he went to the cross when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he's going through such emotional turmoil. Now, that is a very challenging concept for most of us to think about because, sadly, there is such a superficial way in which we often think about the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity that it doesn't really fit some passages of Scripture. Did Jesus always have the perfect happiness uh, of God? Yes, he did. Did he always have an inner Peace in the sense of a relaxed mental attitude. Sure he did. Did he, at the same time, experience conflicting emotions? Certainly he did. He had emotions uh, that were stirred up when he looked upon the, the crowd of mourners at Lazarus' grave and were told that Jesus wept. Now, he, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing at all wrong with the expressions that come legitimately through emotions that are ours. What's wrong is when we are in environments, and sadly this occurs in a lot of churches, where the music or the message or the combination of which is designed to uh, manipulate or degenerate a certain emotive mindset 
because that is what becomes identified as as worship, or that becomes identified as having uh, preached a good message. You've got people to cry. I heard one pastor one time talked about some person in his church who never showed any emotion, and he just said, I, you know, I just had to work and work and work at it until I could finally get a tear to come out of his eye. That, that is very sad. That's not, that's not biblical. That's an illegitimate approach to emotion. But we, have, we are human beings. Emotion is part of our, our makeup, and there is legitimacy to emotional expression under uh, the appropriate circumstances, but it is not one that is just sort of artificially, artificially generated. We see the Lord goes through this. But having emotion, or ha- which is a response, all emotion is simply a, a response to some sort of external uh, stimuli, maybe even internal uh, stimuli, something we think. It's what we do with that emotion as it in- initially presents itself to us as to whether or not we're going to move in the direction of carnality, self-absorption, sin nature, manifestations of of emotional sins, or whether we are going to uh, remain in fellowship and handle that emotion on the basis of the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean you stifle the emotion, per se, Jesus certainly isn't trying to squelch or stifle his uh, emotion in the Garden of Gethsemane. He handles it through prayer, but he is going through much uh, dis- emotional distress. The words in the, in the Greek, uh, two or three different words I pointed out last time, re- reinforce that. You think of other times when God... Uh, showed up to, with Moses and said, well, you're going to go be my, be my spokesman. And he clearly, Moses clearly understood the will of God. He didn't like it. He had no peace with that. Let somebody else do it. And so God said, okay, Aaron will be your spokes, spokesperson. Yeah, God showed up and told uh, Gideon exactly what he wanted Gideon to do. And Gideon started having qualms about it. He had no peace about it. So he had to put out the fleece, which wasn't a way of finding out what God wanted him to do. He already knew that. He put the fleece out because he thought he could come up with a with a set of circumstances that would be impossible for God to fulfill, and then he wouldn't have to do it. He was trying to get out of the will of God, not get into the will of God. And and we have other uh, times in the Old Testament where we look at God giving specific instructions to individuals. They know what the will of God is, but they're, they're not real settled with it. They don't have this sense of internal peace or harmony. So my issue with this verse is that it doesn't pass the doctrinal smell test or the practical smell test. And sadly, many of us have been taught a slightly distorted view of decision-making in the will of God, a way that's not neither biblical and is in fact a very subtle form of mysticism or subjectivism. When the answer to a question is, well, I just know. Well, can you articulate it? No. Well, then you slipped over into a subtle form of mysticism. And I pointed out last time that the concept of the peace of God, and this phrase, this is the only time we have this phrase, peace of God, mentioned. There's peace of Christ mentioned and a couple of other passages. But the idea when it comes to peace, peace in reference to God, is 
primarily used in the scripture to relate to the objective reality of reconciliation. That in terms of uh, our relationship to God, reconciliation has occurred because man has been reconciled to God because of man's sin. The cross paid the penalty, so objective reconciliation took place there. And because of when we have justification, there is an application of the objective reconciliation to us, which is why Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified, or uh, more precisely, because we have been justified, we have peace with God. And I pointed out in Ephesians 2.11 through, through uh, 22 that the focal point there is that, that, that there's not only that, that, that vertical peace with God, but that there was a horizontal disruption of human relationships because of sin, primarily in terms of the big blocks of Jew versus Gentile and the privilege of God's blessing upon the Jews and giving them the law. And now there's a divide, there was a dividing wall because of the law between Jew and Gentile. But, but Paul says that dividing wall, not only is the barrier between God and man removed, but the barrier between Jew and Gentile is removed. There is, uh, to, because we have peace with God, we are to have peace with every other member of the body of Christ. And the focal point in this verse, as we see, is that it's, it doesn't stop. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. But it goes on to say, to which, that is, to this peace, also you were called in one body. And so the focal point in the passage is clearly on the body of Christ and having harmony among the members of Christ. And when we get at cross purposes and we have a relationship breakdown with other members of the body of Christ, One of the ways we are to approach this is to understand is the framework, the foundation of our thinking is that this is wrong, and we have to fix it through God the Holy Spirit and the application of his word. And it is so easy, it is so terribly easy in a body of believers for one person to get at odds with another person and then uh, uh, unintentionally perhaps they say something to somebody else. They're not really out to uh, assassinate anybody's character, but they just make some comment about this other person. And, And whenever we have sins of the tongue, we can never bring those things back. And the next thing you know, some gossip, slander, sins of the tongue develop. And within a short time, you can have a church pick sides and split five different ways in two or three weeks. I've seen this happen. I know of a couple of cases where this may be going on right now. And it's, it's tragic if you allow uh, sin to have a foothold like that. And this is the kind of thing that, that uh, Paul is addressing here is that we need to have an external objective standard and that when we start to get uh, get at cross purposes with other people, have a personality conflict. Uh, that's sort of a modern, sci- really I think it's a psychobabble term because if you have two Christians who are absolutely committed to the objective goals and mission that Jesus Christ has given us, then they can solve any other difficulty or uh, problem that they may have or misunderstanding that they may have because if you're both operating on humility and submitted to God, then you can solve any problem. There's no such thing as a biblically as a personality conflict. I, I didn't see that anywhere in any epistle. Uh, 
I didn't even see it in the Old Testament. God didn't say, well, that's really the problem that David had, why he had an affair with Bathsheba. There were these personality conflicts going on. He never addresses problems from that kind of a psychological perspective. And the solutions, therefore, see, if you misidentify the problem, you're always going to come up with a pseudo-solution, a false solution, uh, but it may appeal to the flesh. It may have some superficial benefit for a while. But we always have to come back to, to, to what the Scripture teaches. The scripture, isn't it wonderful? The Scripture is always so clear. You want to straighten something out in your life? Well, let's just walk back to the cross and think about that for a little while. And then as we think through the implications of our soteriology, then eventually that's going to start impacting uh, other areas of life, uh, what we see here. So when Paul says that we're to let the peace of God rule in our life, it's not this idea that we have this inner peace that's going to tell us, uh, arbitrate or referee or umpire our decisions, but that we have an external standard of peace with God, harmony with God, that is to... Uh, be manifest in every conflict, personal conflict we might have in life. And so we're going to let that be the rule, ruling umpire uh, for every uh, relationship that we have. The idea of ruling in your hearts is ruling in your mind, ruling in your thinking. It's an objective standard for thought. It's the exact same thing the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews twelve fourteen that we are to pursue peace with all people. However, we do run into a little problem because there are a number of people out there who do not really want to cooperate in this venture. And uh, every now and then we have people like that in our life, and they just don't want peace on biblical terms. They want peace on their carnal, rebellious, self-centered terms. And it just isn't ever going to work. So you can't compromise the absolute truth of of the Word of God in order to have this kind of pseudo-harmony. As long as certain people are rebellious, you can't pursue peace. There are examples of this in in the epistles of the New Testament where Paul has to deliver certain people who were former co-workers of his to uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander have to be confined to uh, the you know, discipline of the devil. Uh, there are others that have to be disciplined in other ways, and you can't always achieve that harmony, but we have a responsibility to do what we can within a biblical framework to accomplish that because that is the will of God. But I'll bet right now, just as I said that, you thought of some person that you're at odds with, and the, the thought of going to them and trying to work this out really didn't give you a peace. But that's God's will. See, sometimes doing God's will isn't very much fun. And even though it's not a universal rule, I have often found that doing the right thing often doesn't feel good or it doesn't necessarily feel good. So I want to talk this morning a little bit about the will of God. How do we know the will of God? I'm not going to cover the next 85 slides this morning, so... um, don't worry about it. We're not going to be here till 1230. Graphically speaking, the idea that I'm trying to clarify here is this idea that we are to live in the center of God's will, that somehow God has certain specific things always, a specific location perhaps, a specific way of doing some things, 
that are always true for every every believer. So I'll, I'll give you a little sort of a true and false test on some of these some of these principles. First of all, the statement: God has a specific will for how and what each believer thinks. Is that true or false? Don't speak up. Just think about that. The answer to that is true. God does have a specific will for how and what each believer thinks. How many commands are there? Think on these things. Don't think about those things. Think on these things. There is a biblical viewpoint and, every, and a God's viewpoint. And everything else is human viewpoint, satanic viewpoint, d- demonic thinking. There is a right way to think, and everything else is wrong. And the only way we come to think the right way is to get into the Word of God. So, yes, God has a specific thought will for us. A God, uh, second statement, God has a specific operational will for each believer. Now, that's a trick question. Depends on how you define operational. If you define operational in the general plan of God that is true for every believer, that we're to walk by the Spirit, we're to, we're to confess our sins, we're to pray without ceasing, then God has a, has a set specific operational will for every believer, but that's expressed through all of the commandments and prohibitions that we find in the Scripture. But if you take it down to an individual level, that God has a specific way in which he wants you to operate today, that may not be true because what you, the way you do something and the way somebody else does something may not be exactly the same. You can still follow the same mandates of Scripture, but because of your spiritual gifts, your background, your training, your culture, it will manifest a little differently in one person than in another person. Uh, there are some people who... Um, really like to ease their way into every day. They they just don't want to have to think too deeply or hear loud noises or have too much activity around them. When they first wake up in the morning, it may take them two or three hours to just kind of smooth their way into the day. And the best time for them to uh, think about the Lord, to study the Word, to pray, it's probably going to be 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock in the morning. There are others of us, and I include myself in this group, that when it gets past 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we're half brain dead because we're at our very best as soon as our eyes open in the morning at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. That's when we are the most alert, the most active, and the most focused. And um, so the Scriptures do not teach that you should... M- you should have your time with the Lord in prayer first thing in the morning or last thing at night. That, that's going to manifest itself a little differently. So God's operational will is not, in a specific individual sense, it's not always going to be the same. Third, God always has a specific geographical will for every believer. And the key in a statement like this is looking at those words always and every. Does God have an operate? Does God have a geographical will for different believers at different times? I think He does, but I think there are a lot of times when there's not a specific geographical will. Most of the time, there probably is not. There are a few times when God really does want you right on X marks the spot, but not always. 
a lot of times there's not a specific geographical will for your life. There wasn't a geographical will for Jonah's life until God said, I want you to go to Assyria. Prior to that, it didn't. he was a prophet in the northern kingdom, and prior to that, God didn't care whether he was in Samaria or Sychar or Jezreel. He could get up in the morning and say, you know, I'm going to walk around the city to the right. The next day, I'm going to walk around the city to the left. God didn't have a specific geographical will until God came along and said, I want you to go to Nineveh, which case Jonah said, I'm going to Tarshish. That's when he got outside the geographical will of God. Last question, God always has a specific will for every decision we make in life. Again, you have to watch those words, always and every. There are many decisions in life that have no moral or spiritual consequences whatsoever. Uh, whether you get up in the morning and have a bowl of cereal or a poached egg is not, in, not an issue with the will of God. Maybe you want to get up in the morning and all you want to have is a cup of coffee. That's, that's fine. These are not the kinds of decisions that we're talking about. But if you fall into the category of thought that God always has a, has a center, there's a center for his will, then you have to carry that through to every decision. It's, I'm giving you sort of a reductio ad absurdum argument, and uh, that has its, has its value. So as we look at the concept of the will of God, we have to realize that the will of God, term will of God is used in three uh, three different ways in the Scripture. Will always has to do with God's volition. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he has volition. He makes choices. He's not uh, necessitated to act a certain way or not. Now, he cannot be other than he is. He cannot, uh, he cannot commit a sin. Now, that's because all sin is doing anything that's contrary to the will of God. You can go home and think about that this afternoon. So he can't will to do something other than what is consistent with his own will. Think about it. Don't you know? People always get into these funny things. We're talking about this at the deacons meeting the other day. You run into some people and they say, well, if God's really omnipotent, he could make a square triangle. You neither understand omnipotence nor the concept of, of logic or the meanings of triangles or squares. Uh, will of God refers to the fact that he has volition, he makes decisions, but he can't do anything he wants to do because, uh, I mean, he, he can do anything he wants to, but he's not going to do something that's inconsistent with his character. There are limitations on God. Now, I remember when I used to be involved with and know some people who came out of a charismatic background, they would say, well, you're putting God in a box. I said, no, I'm not putting God in a box. God has revealed that there are certain things he cannot and will not do. That's, that's, living, that's just thinking consistent with what God has revealed. I'm not imposing something upon God. So when we think about the will of God, the first category is that God's sovereign, God's sovereign will, and that is his, his overriding will with regard to his creation where he brings to pass, either through permissive will, which I'll talk about in a minute, or through his uh, active will, where he brings to pass what he wills and what he has decreed. Theologians sometimes use the word decretive will or sovereign will or secret will because this is what he allows, includes what he allows to happen, but not what he has revealed will happen. 
So we don't know what will happen until it happens, and whatever happens is what God decreed would happen. But we won't know what it is until it's happened, and then we can't change it because it's already occurred. We only know the sovereign will of God after the fact. The second category is God's moral will. God's moral will is basically the expression of the things we ought to do and the things we ought not to do. It is expression of that which is consistent with God's righteousness, his justice, his holiness. Sometimes God's moral will is also called his revealed will. But sometimes God's revealed will does not involve morality. So I find a little bit of a, of a difference there. God told, has told different people at different times to do certain things. And what he told them to do wasn't necessarily moral or immoral. We'll see an example of that in a minute from Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, the Torah expressed God's moral will for Israel, but not for the Gentiles. Now, does that mean it was not wrong to commit murder among the Gentiles? No, but the basis for that was something else. It wasn't the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments was part of a code that was for the Jews and the Jews alone. It wasn't for the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Egyptians or any other ancient people. It was just for Israel. Uh, but it didn't mean that that, uh, that there were aspects of it that weren't true for other people as well, but it wasn't, it wasn't their mail. didn't have their name on it. Uh, just like today, we have in, Fr- in France, it's, it's a crime to commit murder. In Britain, it's a crime to, get to, to commit murder. But it's not based on the same thing, the same law that makes it a crime to commit murder in Texas. It's a different law code for different people. Third paragraph there, I state that God expresses, expresses his specific geographical will or specific operational will through special revelation. Only, So moral will expresses what's right, what's wrong, what we should do, what we ought to do, but other more specific things were always expressed through God's, God's special revelation. So for the, for the Jews in the Old Testament, he lays down the moral law in terms of the Torah, but the Torah doesn't tell them when they are to move, when they are to camp at night, the Torah doesn't tell them what, how they are to conquer the, uh, the Canaanites. That comes later through special revelation. The Torah doesn't tell uh, Isaiah later on what to do in specific circumstances or Ezekiel. That came through special revelation. So we have a third category is God's specific will, which we might call uh, uh, his functional will, operational will, or geographical will is always expressed through special revelation. God speaking to someone. It's interesting. I went back and looked at some different books I have on the will of God, and as I was reading through them, uh, expressing positions that I, I don't agree with, and they would say, God tells you where, where to go. And he always quotes passages like Jonah and statements to uh, Ezekiel and others and to Paul, and he said, yeah, but that's special revelation. That doesn't happen anymore. So, so 
it's a proof texting that's invalid because you're crossing categories. For example, in Ezekiel 4.1, we have a great example of God's specific will for Ezekiel, but it's expressed God specifically tells Ezekiel this. He's not talking to anybody today. We're living in an era of no special revelation. God told, um, and this is also an example, by the way, of special revelation that's not moral. God says, you also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city of Jerusalem. God used Ezekiel to do these little uh, uh, dramas in order to uh, teach certain points or illustrate certain points to the, uh, to the Judahites. He, so here he's having him take a clay tablet, and on it he's going to draw a drawing of the city of Jerusalem. And then he says, put it down, and you're going to lay siege, or you're going to play, have a little war drama going on in front of you with little clay soldiers, and you're going to lay siege against the city of Jerusalem and build a siege wall against it, heap up a mound against it, and set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, God said, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. So God said, lie on your left side. Was it morally wrong to lie on your right side? Now, it wasn't morally wrong, but it would have been disobedient to God. So, but this is specific. Now, you would never discern this, and Ezekiel didn't discern this by having a peace or tranquility or contentment in his heart. He discerned this only because God said, this is what I want you to do, and it's very specific. This was, for that point in time, in this period of time, the specific geographical and operational will that God had for Ezekiel as a prophet. But the rest of other times in Ezekiel's life, he could go to Jerusalem or he could go over to uh, Bethlehem, or he could go up to uh, Samaria, but God wasn't requiring him to be in a specific location. So even scripturally, when we look at the prophets, there's not a specific geographical will all the time for any of these. It was only at specific times. We have another example in Acts 10. About the ninth hour of the day, he, that is uh, Cornelius, speaking about his vision prior to God appearing to Peter, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a Tanner, whose house is by the sea. He'll tell you what you must do. See, this has been, quite, been cited as a way, as a passage on divine guidance. But it's it's... Special revelation. It's a vision. God sends an angel to speak to Cornelius. It's, it's not something internal. It's objective. It's special revelation. It's like the giving of scripture, but it's not inscripturated. So it's, it's, uh, it's limited and it doesn't, that kind of thing doesn't happen today. Fourth thing about God's will is you've got a category that we call God's overriding will. And this is when we make certain decisions contrary to God's sovereign will. Now, you may make a good decision. You may desire this. You have illustrations of this. For example, uh, Paul alludes to this kind of thing in 2 Corinthians when he's 
uh, talking about giving, you may desire to give a lot of money to a missionary or to a cause, and that is a good, right, moral, and wonderful thing. But God doesn't want you to do it, so he's not going to give you the money to do it. That's his overriding will. And uh, and I think things like that happen. God may want you, uh, you may think you should do something, and God doesn't want you to do it, so he prevents you from doing it. He overrides your volition and doesn't allow you to bring to fruition something that you may want to do that's good. And you may be, and also the example I have is Jonah, you may have something you wish to do, or that God want, you know God want, would like you to do morally, and you go the other way, and God says, not so fast. I'm going to straighten you out. You think you want to, you don't want to do what I, where I'm obviously leading you, so I'm going to make sure you end up there. And uh, that's what happened with Jonah. God told him specifically what to do. Jonah said, mm, I don't think so. I'm going to go the other way. And God brought him back to where he should go. Now, that's important because in those times when God does have a specific geographical will for you, you're going to discover that no matter what you try to do, you can't avoid it. You're going to end up right where God wants you to end up. Now, sometimes it becomes obvious. And uh, one example I have of this in my life is back in 19, early 1998 when I got a... Um, no, it was early. It was late 1997, September 97. I got a letter in the mail from uh, Bryce Birch, deacon at Preston City Bible Church, and he said, "We've been looking for a pastor for the last year. We can't find one." And George Meisinger was just up here, and he recommended you. And we would like for you to come up here and uh, consider candidating for the uh, pulpit here. And uh, <clears throat> I showed that to Pam, and I said, I don't want to go be a pastor now. I'm very happy here. At the time, I was working at uh, RBC Junior Bible Ministries, and I said, I, I, I just don't want to move. I'm not looking to move. I'm comfortable with where I am. I'm not going anywhere. So I called Bryce up, and, and um, that's how we first met over the phone. And, and Bryce said, well, he wasn't going to take no for an answer. Still doesn't. And uh, he said, why don't you just take a week's vacation and come up here? We don't have anybody in the church who can teach anything, and we're starving to death. Just take a week off and come up here and give us a Bible conference. I thought, well, I got a week's vacation. I wasn't going to take it because I don't have any money to go anywhere, but they're going to pay me. So we could go up there and then have a free two-day trip over to New York for a little vacation. This will work. See how godly my reasoning was. <laughs> I said, this, 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 this would be good. And so... We went up there over uh, Christmas, between uh, Christmas and New Year's, and, and I taught, and I'm oh, every single night as I would talk to, afterwards talk to the people, meet with the deacons, everything, I had such turmoil about this. These were wonderful people, wonderful people. And I thought, this is, this is a great church for some pastor, but I have no idea how, how I could ever come up here. Uh, my, my wife teaches school. You can't leave a school teaching job in the middle of the year and expect to find another school teaching job in the middle of the year. That doesn't happen, and they're not offering enough money for us to make it on, 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 on one income. Uh, it just isn't going to work, and I would uh, wrestle with it and toss and turn at night, and there was absolutely no sense of peace. Came back and um, said, well, you know, I know they're probably going to make an offer, but I'm not going to go, and I felt at peace with that finally. 
I'm not going to go. And so about three weeks later, and I had sort of heard through the grapevine that the deacons were having trouble sort of coming together with a written packaged offer, I got an email from Bryce, and Bryce said, well, the deacons are still putting together their offer, but this ad appeared in the local Norwich paper yesterday that the Norwich School District is looking for an elementary, qualified elementary teacher who is bilingual in Spanish and can be hired now in order to uh, prepare for a new program next year in teaching world language at the elementary level. Well, those of you who know my wife know she grew up in Mexico City, is bilingual and teaches bilingual ed. So I looked at that and I went, I turned to her and I said, God's moving us to Connecticut. She said, how do you know that? I said, this doesn't happen. This is, this is obvious that this is going to happen. And she, I, so I said, just, just call them on Monday, and, and, and I'll tell you, we're going to end up there. And so she called the school district on Monday, and, and they only had this. The, the deadline on the application was the next Friday. So she worked that week, put together everything. We faxed it up there, and they, they called her up. We found out later they had interviewed 12 other teachers. Wasn't that right? 11 or 12 other teachers, uh, about half of whom were already in district up there. And so they called her up and they interviewed her over the phone and hired her on the spot. I said, see, I told you. God opened the, do- opened the door and it was just so obvious. And it doesn't always happen that way. But it, it was pretty clear that if I had decided not to go, God was going to drop kick me through something else. So uh, it just every other option was shutting down so that there was only one clear way to go. So you just you, you can't really come back and say, well, I should have done something else. You know it. And, and that's happened two or three times in my life. But other times it's like, well, you can go to Dallas, live in Dallas, or live in Houston or live in Austin. You know, it's a matter of just applying the word to making the best choice you can on the basis of everything that you know. So uh, God overrides our will. Now, in just wrapping things up because we're running out of time today, just designed this little little graphic here. God's sovereign will is the circle on the left. That's the things that God has said will happen, has determined will happen, but he hasn't informed us about. And then God's moral will or his revealed will is the circle on the right, and that's the all of the thou shalts and thou shalt nots that are in the in the scripture. And there's an overlap. There is a period there's an area in which we are obedient to God's moral will, and that is what God has decreed to happen. But see, we can also make make uh uh, there's areas in God's sovereign will that he allows to happen that are not part of his moral will. That's his permissive will. He gives man volition, and, so, and that means that he allows man to make bad decisions that are contrary to God's revealed will, but God is going to override them and eventually make all things work together for good. So this sort of sets us up for understanding the will of God and to know it, The bottom line is that when God wants us to do something specific, you can't run away from it, and that's what will take place. The rest of the time, all of our decision-making is on the basis of what he has specifically told us. There are over 500 imperative mood verbs in the epistles of the New Testament. That that sort of, that that builds the uh, fence line, 
and the border for our life game. We can't violate those. When we do, we're violating the moral will of God. We can run across those boundaries, and we're outside the moral will of God, but we may be in his, in his sovereign will. But there are also a number of other ways in which the Scripture expresses God's, uh, God's uh, revealed will. There are different grammatical forms other than imperatives. But that sets the boundary. And all, from 90, 99.9% of the time, the issue is, are you going to live inside those boundaries? And as long as you don't go outside of those boundaries, whatever decision you make is okay, as long as nothing in it violates those boundaries. Are you going to be able to find a local church where you can grow and mature as a believer? Are you going to have opportunities to... Uh, to be involved in Christian service? Are you going to, is making this move going to put you in a position where you're going to have to compromise your, uh, your moral absolutes that come from the Word of God? And the answer to that is, well, I don't know. Well, then maybe that's not where God wants you. But if you, you can you grow as a believer, you're going to be taught, you have your spiritual priority right, and other things, then as long as you're walking with the Lord, uh, learning, growing, maturing, then it's the test isn't are you going to make the right decision, but are you going to make a decision the right way using the right principles? And so the test isn't necessarily what decision you make. It's really are you going to make the decision the right way on the basis of his word? So we'll come back when I get back from the Israel trip, and we will uh, continue this to just clarify this, because I know this is a burning question for some people. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning to focus upon you, to focus upon your will, to come to understand how we are to live our lives and make decisions that honor and glorify you, that you may uh, be the, the, that your honor, your glory, your will, uh, would be the ultimate focal point of our life, not what we want, our own comfort, our own desires, our own agenda. Father, above all things, we're thankful for our salvation. And we pray this morning that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for everyone's sins, yours included. The penalty is paid for you on your behalf so that there's nothing you bring to the table. You just simply come and accept the gift that has been provided for you. And when we accept that gift by believing that Jesus died for us, he paid the penalty for our sins. Just put your name, fill in the blank with your name. Jesus died for you. Then at that instant, you have eternal life. It's a free gift. Now, Father, we pray that you would... Uh, Help us uh, to understand the things that we're learning about your will and how to live for you and that we may be challenged by your word to to let that dictate the direction, the path of our thinking, that we may learn to think as you think and glorify you in every area of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.